So, um, so today's Grand Round speaker essentially needs no introduction, but we will um, clearly uh, reintroduce Sherry. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, Dr. Sherry Shinoda is a alumnus of our residency program, as well as the University of California, Irvine for her bachelor's degree and Morehouse School of Medicine uh, for her doctor in medicine. She graduated now two years ago uh, and has been participating in fellowship at the University of Florida in community and societal pediatrics, uh, developing uh, a clinic, a medical home initiative at the Hope Clinic, um, which is uh, providing trauma-informed care for children of incarcerated parents in partnership with Operation New Hope in Jacksonville, uh, and participated uh, extensively in um, international health as well as trauma-informed work while she was here at, at Chad. She's been at this podium fairly recently. Uh, we're already inviting her back. You may remember her, her grand rounds in the spring of 2014 uh, on HIV vaccination and the fall of civilization or the downfall of civilization, which of course it didn't turn out to be. And we're really thrilled that Kathy Shevkin has continued uh, her communication with Sherry and, and allowed us to invite her and her her beautiful family back already. So Sherry, welcome home. Can you all hear me in the back? Does that sound okay? All right, great. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with a word association. So when you see women's gay, animal, and human on the same slide, does it make you think of anything in particular? Right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so my hidden agenda, uh, my only disclosure, is that by the end of this hour that we have together, 45 minutes, I'd like you to think of rights when you think of children as well. So I have nothing to disclose, and what I'm going to be talking about is a child rights-based approach to pediatrics. And my... Public objectives are to describe the role of health equity and social justice in the determination of child health outcomes, to recognize the utility of using a child rights-based approach in pediatric care, and then to start to incorporate some of the tools of child rights into what we do for kids. So the first question I want to ask is, are we interested in equality or are we interested in equity? And this is how this was explained to me. So you have on the left, three girls, and whether it's because of um, age or disability or um, any, anything that you can think of, one can't, two of them can't see over the fence. So equality is, well, um, we're input-oriented, so we're going to give everyone the same step stool because that's fair. And equity says, well, if we want everyone to see over the fence, then that doesn't make any sense. So we give everybody either a larger step stool or two-step stools, however many stools you need to be able to see over the fence. So we're talking about output rather than input. And I would submit to you that we're not necessarily, um, in healthcare at least, not necessarily concerned with equality because our patients come to us with equal dignity, but they don't necessarily have the same um, background, the same family, the same opportunities in life, the same genetics. So what we're really, really concerned about is making sure that inequality doesn't become inequity. So why does it matter? Um, and I felt like this was important enough to actually read. This is from the World Health Organization. They did a commission on social determinants of health, and they said, where systematic differences in health are judged to be avoidable, 
by reasonable action, they are quite simply unfair. It is this that we label health inequity. And putting right these inequities is a matter of social justice. Reducing health inequities is an ethical imperative, and social injustice is killing people on a grand scale. So this is, this is the, the framework that, that when I think about um, equity and moving from the evidence base, which we'll talk about a little bit, to positive health outcomes for kids, this is the, the, the framework that I think of. And this is directly from the policy statement that the AAP put out on equity and children's rights. So you have on one end the evidence base, which is pretty extensive at this point and has been building over the last 30 to 45 years. And you have child rights, social justice, human capital investment, and health equity ethics. And these four principles that make up child health equity, um, these are the four that we're, that we're going to be focusing most of, most of our conversation about. So child rights is based on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and it delineates responsibilities um, that adults have toward children. So we are duty bearers with respect to children who have rights. And social justice deals with the allocation of limited resources. And we all know that we live in a planet, on a planet that has limited resources at this point. Human capital investment is, what, the way that I think of human capital investment is we're tired of talking about disparity. How do we move from talking about disparities and who doesn't have what to investing in each child and in their human capital potential? And then health equity ethics are what we think of traditionally as ethics. Um, not doing any harm, doing what's best for, the, for, for each patient, and so on. So our question becomes, how do we achieve health equity for children? And I want us to kind of keep this child in mind while we're having this conversation. So this is a seven-year-old, well-child check. I see probably, I don't know how many of, of this same kid every week. They come in, they say, the parents say, no concerns, this is just a school physical, and he's probably, I think he's out of his inhaler, I'm not sure, he has asthma and ADHD, and, and they just, they want to come in and out, and you have like 30 minutes. So you, you, you see this family, and mom looks a little bit uncomfortable, dad looks really engaged, like he's trying, and the kid looks really withdrawn. Um, and then they don't know which inhaler they're using, but they say, oh, the blue one or the orange one. Um, so we have a chart on the wall that has kind of color-coded. And then mom says the ADHD seems controlled, uh, but he's been kind of withdrawn lately. So, and his exam is largely unremarkable. Maybe he has some allergic rhinitis. And you think, okay, I can get this kid in and out. So this is the kid that I have in mind when I'm thinking um, throughout this presentation. So the question we ask is, how do we know that inequity makes us sick? And I want to present some of the evidence base because we're at Dartmouth. And we care about evidence. We care about evidence everywhere, but this is where it was really instilled in me. So I feel like this is really important. So a little bit of historical perspective on the evidence. This started back in the 1970s with some really seminal studies, which I'll touch on really briefly, and developed into what we know as life course science, which is things happen in childhood, they affect adult health outcomes. And then we've entered into what I think of as the era of social determinants of health, where we know that the environment that we live in can make us sick. So the very first study that I think is really important is the Whitehall studies. These were done by Dr. Michael Marmot, if people are familiar with him, in the United Kingdom. And he looked at British civil servants. And this was started in 1967. This is in England, so they have 
a health service for the entire country. Everybody has the same health care. So that's already an equalizer. And he looked at social, um, social classes. So he had professionals. Um, he had people doing clerical work, people doing more like manual labor. And he found a really what seems to us kind of elementary, that there's a socioeconomic gradient in health based on what type of work you do. And this was really revolutionary at the time and totally brand new. And then you have all of the, the work that came out of the, the ACE study. So adverse childhood experiences, this was done in over, uh, they looked at over 17,000 adults, and this was done in Southern California at Kaiser in conjunction with the CDC. So they looked at, and I think a, a lot of people don't know that this was a largely Caucasian population, about 70% Caucasian and 70% college educated, which you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of some of the outcomes that they had. So they broke down adverse childhood experiences into these nine broad categories. You have abuse, which could be physical, emotional, sexual, neglect, and household dysfunction like parental incarceration or divorce. And they found two really important um, pieces of, of information. One is that these are really common. So you look at all of, all of the population of the United States, and over 50% of the population of the US has at least one ACE. And the second thing they found was that there's a dose-response relationship between having an adverse childhood experience and some really significant adult health outcomes. So these are just a few. Um, and I, I just wanted to chart them out so you could, could take a look. But you have things like smoking, alcohol use, IV drug use, heart disease. Um, I just want to draw your attention to suicide attempt because look at this, zero ACEs, maybe one in 100 suicide attempts. And it goes up to, almost, to about 20% if you have four or more ACEs, which is really uh, a staggering increase. And so these are the, some of the other risk outcomes. You have um, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancer. This is, I mean, this is really staggering information to me. And another thing that I think is really important is that behavior is affected by adverse childhood experiences. So a lot of the things that we think are not controllable, like ADHD, um, are affected by adverse childhood events. So when a kid, like the kid that we're thinking of, comes in who has maybe poorly controlled ADHD, you start to think about whether he has any trauma in his life and any toxic stress. Um, you, can, you can start to see like a, a broader picture. Another really important uh, piece of work that came out of the, the earlier studies in the 70s and into the 90s is this idea of early brain development. So we know that most of, most of the really important development occurs from zero to three. And then this is work that was done by an economist named James um, Heckman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work, showing that if you invest in early childhood education, you get an amazing return on investment. So this, there have been a lot of studies looking at his data and trying to extrapolate how exactly, um, what, what exactly he meant. And some studies show that you get about a 16%. I don't know if anyone is still has a savings account at this point, but I think I make less than like half of a 1%. Um, so it's a really, I mean, it's an amazing return on investment. And some people um, have shown that you invest $1 in early brain development and you get over eight back um, in, adult, in adult health outcomes. And this has an 80% benefit to the general public, which is really amazing.
And so this is, um, this is from the US Census Bureau. I just wanted to, and this is pretty recent. So this looks from the 1960s to 2015, and it looks at median household income by race. And you can see that they've been pretty, pretty consistent, and that's important because of income inequality. And this is also something that's been proven to, to correlate with poor health outcomes. So I didn't know about the Robin Hood Index until recently, but it's really aptly named. So the Robin Hood Index looks at the value, um, and it sort of approximates the value of total income that you have to take from those above the mean in, in a state and give to those below the mean to have equality in, your, in, your, in, in, in people's um, incomes and in the distribution of income. And it's kind of cool, actually, Vermont and New Hampshire are on the more equitable end of the scale, at least in the 19... Yeah, when, sorry, in the 1990s when this um, study was done. So you can see that uh, age-adjusted mortality correlates pretty well with an inequitable distribution of income. And so we've, we've been building this, this evidence base over the last 30 plus years, and we're getting into this era of social determinants of health. I think everybody knows that there are determinants of health that have nothing to do with a kid came into clinic and has asthma or ADHD. And these are from the CDC. So they look at neighborhoods and built environments that kids live in. They look at economic stability, so financial um, health. They look at health and healthcare as a, as a component, and then social community contexts and education. So we're, we're understanding that social determinants of health really affect the outcomes we see in children. And actually, most recently, there was a poverty statement that came out of the American Academy of Pediatrics that has, has has really um, highlighted the issue of poverty, that children who experience poverty at a risk of a whole host of adverse health and developmental outcomes throughout their lives, and not just in childhood, but that poverty influences genomic function, it influences brain development, and exposures to toxic stress. So this is from the New England Journal, and I thought, okay, how much exactly are we doing in healthcare? And it's about 10% according to this study. So genetics accounts for about 30% of health and well-being. What we do in clinic is about 10%. And the social and economic factors are about 20. Um, and then individual behavior is 40%. But if we think back to the, the adverse childhood experiences study, and you start to think, well, is behavior determined by your experiences in childhood, then maybe the social and environmental factors are actually more than 20%. And I would, I would submit to you that they probably are. So how does this look in our cities? So this is a map of Jacksonville, Duval County, which is the largest county in the states. And you have the kind of red hot center, um, which is health zone one, and that's the urban core. And then you have health zone six, where I live, out at the beaches. <laughs> so it, I mean, it, you, this, this, is, this doesn't need a spoiler alert, but you can, kind of, you can kind of start to think, well, the urban core has the highest population density. It has the highest percentage of minorities. It has the lowest median household income. It has the lowest percentage of high school graduation, the highest percentage of ED visits, the highest percentage of homicide deaths. So how does that translate into life expectancy? 
Anyone want to take a guess what the difference between life expectancy is in the urban core versus where I live? In years? Eight. Someone said eight. Yeah, it's a nine-year difference. So you can expect to live 71 years if you live in the urban core, and if you live in my neighborhood, you can expect to live to about 80. Which just, I mean, it, it breaks my heart uh, that there's such a huge disparity in in life expectancy based on just your zip code. And of course, all of the things that you're experiencing because you live in that zip code. So I think we can definitively say that inequity makes us sick. So taken together, this evidence base makes it really clear. And we know that inequity is not just a cause of disease, but it's a reason for worse outcomes in our patients. So this is the point at which, in clinic, I hear it's overwhelming. There's nothing we can do. So sometimes it's easier just not to ask. So when that kid comes in who's seven, who has asthma and ADHD, and you have 30 minutes or less because they came in late, and you have to get them in and out of the clinic, sometimes it's actually easier to just say, maybe he lives in moldy housing. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of things, but I can't fix it. So sometimes we don't ask. And I would submit to you that the don't ask, don't tell never works for social determinants of health. And there is something that we can do. And I think we have to start to think that we're not alone in this. We don't have to fix it in clinic. So what I tell the residents actually is, it's like palpating an abdomen. So I'm going to palpate the abdomen. I may find something. I may find a mass. But nobody expects me to image it and remove it in clinic. Right? I mean, nobody expects that of, of any of us to be our own subspecialists in clinic. And so think of these social determinants as sort of like an incidentaloma. If you come across one, nobody is saying you have to fix it in clinic. It's okay to say, okay, I have 20 minutes, but I know where to refer. And so just like we would palpate an abdomen, we would ask because there is something we can do even if we have limited time. All right, so back to our case. So say that you're trying to have a rights-based practice, and you give this family an ACE questionnaire in the lobby, and you want to talk about social determinants of health, and you get inside of the, the exam room, and the ACE questionnaire is not really filled out. But in your social history, you find out that the parents are getting a divorce. So that's at least one adverse childhood experience, right? So, but you're, you're, think, you're thinking, well, you know, they didn't really fill it out, but I'm going to ask some of these questions anyway. So you ask, and you realize that they do have housing and food insecurity, because we know that one out of five kids in America has food insecurity. And you realize that dad was recently incarcerated. So this is, again, this is our, our list. If dad was incarcerated and the parents are getting a divorce, that's two aces, you don't know why dad was incarcerated. Maybe there's a history of domestic violence. Maybe there's a history of mental illness or IV drug use, and maybe there was some sort of abuse. So this child's picture starts to change. This is no longer just a kid with asthma and ADHD, but he's got a whole lot of other things going on. And one of the questions I get most often is, how do I ask about this? You can't just, I mean, they just, I've never met this family before in my life, and they come in and, you know, they, they have 25 minutes or 30 minutes, and you can't just say, were you, were you like in jail recently? 
or do you do you use IV drugs? Have you been have you been hitting your wife? Like you, it's it's really difficult to breach that that barrier and to talk about these really difficult subjects. So, this is what I do, and I think it works differently for everybody. But what I do is we have a form for for every kid that comes into the Duval County school system. And it's the same physical form for everyone. And at the very bottom, there's a section on tuberculosis. And it's, it's got a few screening questions like, um, has anyone recently come from a different country who's been exposed to TB? Has anyone been incarcerated or using drugs? Um, has your kid been exposed to anyone who's been doing these things? So I actually use that as a gateway. I pull out my little sheet, and I look really official, like I do this for everybody. It's not personal. I mean. You know, I ask everybody these questions. Have you been exposed to anyone who's been coughing a lot or who might be, you know, exposed to tuberculosis? Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's not personal, right? Like, they, to kind of decrease the anxiety level about these questions. Okay, so that's a no. How about, has anyone recently come from another country? And that answer is usually no. Um, has anyone been in jail recently or, or has, has been using IV drugs? So I kind of slip it in there. Um, on the school form. And then while I'm at it, I ask about domestic violence and food insecurity. And the way I phrase food insecurity is, does everyone have enough to eat at the end of the month in your house? Um, because we can help with that, and there are places we can refer you. So that's how I ask about a lot of these, a lot of these issues that I, th I think really affect the health of our children, our patients. And then when you, when you think about this same patient, um, so instead of refilling his medication and maybe giving him some phonase um, for his allergic rhinitis and signing his school physical form, you start to think about toxic stress. So parental incarceration is a huge toxic stress. Something like two-thirds of all kids whose parents are incarcerated have seen their parents handcuffed. So that's another huge toxic stress in his life. And I would submit to you that this is, this is what's going to kill him it's less likely to be the asthma or the ADHD. And it's more likely to be the toxic stress. So it's overwhelming, and it's kind of hard to think about. But it doesn't have to be this way, right? Back to that WHO um, commission. So social injustice is killing people on a large scale. But this isn't the way it has to be. So this is the policy statement. Um, and that gives us the, the precedent that we're using to link health equity to children's rights. And the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, which has been around since 1989 and which we have not ratified yet, um, is, is, the, is, is the basis for a lot of the work on child rights. And it really focuses on three kind of broad domains and categories of, of children's rights. So you have protection rights, which, which is what we normally think of when we think of children's rights. And laws in this country, especially, that have to do with children, are largely about keeping children safe. So we have a lot of laws about child protection, what you can do, what you can say to a kid, and, and what is the proper way of treating children. And the, the other two categories are, are sort of the, the newer um, ideas that the convention provides. So ideas about promotion and child development and survival, helping kids thrive. And then lastly, participation, which some, some people have a little bit more, um, is a little bit more difficult for a lot of, especially parents, to swallow. Because this is really about giving children a voice. 
So these are all the, the articles of the convention. And you can see, again, most of them are promotion and protection. And then there are a few about giving children an active voice in things that concern them. And just a quick word on participation. Kids have a stake in, in things that concern them. And they are really concerned about things that concern them. So for instance, we're opening a new clinic um, currently at UF, the University of Florida. And it's a medical home for children with mental and behavioral health concerns. And it's and kind of co-located with psychiatry. So we went to the Children's Council in Jacksonville and said, we have all these ideas, such great ideas for what to name it. And we came up with like mind-body center, uh, mental health center, behavioral wellness center. And they, they were like, no, we don't like any of those. We don't like mind, we don't like mental, and we don't like behavioral. We hate all those words. Please don't use any of them. We'd like you to call it the Wellness Center. And we said, OK. Um, so the kids actually named it. And they have, a, they have a council person who's on the city council who just does children's rights work and just does children's participation. So he just focuses on these issues. So the, the question is, why rights? Why, why do we have to frame it in terms of rights? And this is a really insulting poster from the women's suffrage movement that to me, to me, is a really good explanation for why rights. So as you can see, it's a woman's head. And these are the things that are in it. You have chocolate and a crying baby and a puppy and a dress and a hat and some letters and, and a couple guys in there and, some, and a big wedding ring. So this, I mean, this was meant to be really hurtful and insulting to women that we already know what's on your mind. You don't need to have a vote because we'll vote for you, right? Because we know what you're thinking about. Um, but I would say that the reason rights are really, really important is because un unintentionally, I think we do this to kids. Um, we, we frame all of our laws in terms of protection, which is how laws were, were framed for women before women gained the, the right to vote. Um, so protection is not enough. I would submit to you that it's never enough and that the majority doesn't always know what's best for the minority, and the minority in this case is children. And that we really need to frame this issue in terms of rights because we need to respect children as human beings and they, to give them a voice and to know that they are rights holders and we bear duty toward them um, with respect to fulfilling these rights. And it gives children a developmentally appropriate voice. I'm not saying that we need to have kids voting in the general election, although probably have better outcomes. Um, <laughs> but that they, 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 they understand what's going on around them in a developmentally appropriate way. And we can give them a developmentally appropriate voice in things that concern them. There was a really, um, a really touching story that I heard last week. I was at a summit uh, regarding children in the juvenile justice system. And the speaker, her name was Lawanda. She has been working with girls in the juvenile justice system for over 30 years. And she said, in 30 years, I have only heard it said to girls that you are being put in detention for your own good. We don't say that to boys. We say it to girls. Um, and so this idea that we know what's best and we, we can protect you, we can protect you by putting you in jail, is just, to me, I mean, it just, it, it really breaks my heart because we do this to girls and we do this to kids. And so this is why we need a rights-based system. Because 
it helps to reframe what our responsibility is toward children and not just in terms of protection. So how do we deal with child rights as pediatric providers? So we have to know what rights children have and the convention um, can fit on one page, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We try to post it in our clinics so kids can see it and know what their rights are and so we can educate them about their rights. We need to respect them and we need to advocate for their rights until they're at a stage where they can advocate for themselves. And then we need to help them learn to advocate for themselves and give them a voice in things that concern them. So back to these child equity principles. Um, we talked a little bit about children's rights. These are the principles of, of medical ethics. This is sort of the traditional model, and you can see it line up really well with the articles of the convention. So you have on one end, non-discrimination. No child will be discriminated against by race, gender, um, sexual orientation. And on the other end, justice. So it correlates really well with the justice principle. Best interest of the child versus beneficence. Survival and development of the child versus non-maleficence, and then giving children a voice, the participation we've been talking about, and autonomy. So this model um, is really positive, and I like that. So it, this, this works really well, I think, in, in, in clinical practice, and it translates really well, because I think we all get tired of talking about disparity. We get tired of, of hearing, this group of people is more likely to die and be incarcerated and have these really terrible outcomes. Um, so that's sad. And we're just going to keep talking about disparity. And disparity language, I think, at some point needs to be transformed to a more, a more positive language and a way of talking about people's strengths and not just the things that they come to us with that are negatives. So this human capital investment model reflects sort of a moral and ethical commitment by society and communities to invest resources required to improve health and well-being in children. And it's broken down into these kind of five broad domains. So personal capital is an investment in dignity of children, in identity, in health and well-being, without discrimination. Um, social capital refers to putting value on human relationships. So a kid comes to you in clinic, his social capital might be grandma. She might be the, the biggest social capital in his life, and so you invest in that relationship for, for that child. Environmental capital is the physical space that, that children live in. Um, so home, school, educational capital. We, we already know that quality education is essential, um, especially early learning services and access to kids for, for kids with special needs, and then monetary or, um, or economic capital. And then the, the sort of next step is to think of advocacy as this kind of um, pyramid where clinical care is what we do the most, but it's also possible to do community and systems work and, and public policy. And a really good example of this is what happened in Flint, Michigan. So you had a pediatrician in the community seeing a bunch of kids, seeing all these abnormal lead levels and thinking, well, this can't be right. There's something going on. There's a trend and a pattern. And so she took it to the next step in, in advocacy or the next level, which is community and systems, um, went to her community and said, there's something going on here. And then you get policy change where we got to fix this water situation. So it can be something like that. Um, I remember speaking with a colleague, Diana Baker, who was seeing kids with dental caries over and over again in Maine. Right, so that's the clinical step where all these kids are coming in with dental caries. This is a huge problem in our community. 
so what's, what's the issue? And then you look at the community and you think, okay, well, WIC is giving like gallons of juice to these families, um, so maybe we should do something about that. And then you can start to work on policy change. So it can be a really big project, it can be a small project, but this is sort of how I think of advocacy um, as, as sort of a, a broad clinical base, some community work, and then a small amount of public policy work for most of us. I think that's how it, it, it ends up being. So there are a lot of tools, I think, at our disposal when we think of clinical community and public policy um, advocacy. So we talked briefly about the human capital investment model. You have the Convention on the Rights of the Child. You have the concept of a medical home, which you can create for groups of kids. So for instance, in Jacksonville, we have a medical home for children of incarcerated parents that we're trying to work out. We're getting a, a medical home for children with um, mental and behavioral health issues. We have one for kids with complex health needs. Um, and we have another one for kids in transition. So kids who are 16 to 26 who have complicated issues that adult providers are less, um, less comfortable taking care of and we slowly transition them to adult care. So the medical home model is, is a great equity tool. Um, medical legal partnerships, the reach out and read program, the, um, the idea of motivational interviewing, home visitation programs, the AAP toolkits, so many different things we could talk about. Um, and I won't get into all of these, but I'll give a couple of examples as we get back to our case. So this is a child rights and equity approach to asthma when we go back to this kid. We have our four broad domains, and we think, all right, let's go back to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. What are, how, how have this child's rights been violated? Is it an issue of non-discrimination? Does he live in a neighborhood where, um, because of the color of his skin or because of his background, he's more at risk for having worse asthma outcomes? What's in the best interest of this child? What's in the best interest of his survival and development? Does he have access to information? Does he have access to clean air? And what is the standard of living that's required for him to have the best possible outcomes? And then some of the social justice issues. So again, the social justice issues have to do with allocation of limited resources. So is there fair housing? Is there access to clean air? Is there access to health care? And is it appropriately funded? It's not enough to give a kid a card and say, well, you're insured now. And if no one takes that insurance or if no one's taking Medicaid, it's not, it's not useful. Um, and then appropriate physician reimbursement so that we can see these kids having a nurse's office at the school and then environmental justice. So um, people that live in different parts of the world are differently affected by climate change. We know that. So is this an issue of environmental justice? We know that um, there's more ragweed in places that are more affected by, uh, by climate change because of CO2 emissions, and we know that kids' allergies get worse as climate change gets worse. So is this an issue, is this an issue of environmental justice? And then um, the, the sort of traditional model. So in this child's case, you can, one of the things that we can do in this, for this child is sort of expand the social history a little bit. So using this human capital investment model, you can ask, what's your home like? Does anyone smoke there? We all ask these questions. Do you know what your medications are for? 
Um, are you able to afford your medications? I have a lot of patients that share inhalers, so like there's one inhaler and all the siblings use it. So are you using anyone else's inhaler? And then the, the two that I think are really important are the personal and social capital. So um, issues of hope and identity. A lot of kids with chronic conditions, like our patients with CF, have these issues of hope and identity where they have identified with their disease. They don't really see themselves as adults one day. They think, okay, I'm just gonna be sick my whole life. Or kids with diabetes, I'm gonna have this disease forever. It's not gonna get better. So what's the point in keeping up with my medication or going to my visits or, or doing any of this stuff? It doesn't matter. Why should I do you know, my chest PT? Um, so exploring some of these issues of hope and identity, what makes you not want to use your inhaler? I get a lot of kids that are bullied because they wear their glasses. And it's such a small thing, but if you can't see the board, um, it's difficult to learn. Do you want this information in a different language? And then building their social capital. Who do you respect? Who cares most about your asthma? Who's going to help you take these medications? And then investing in that. I remember really clearly a few years back when I was a resident here, the Rwandan Minister of Health came and spoke. I don't know if people remember that. Um, and I remember going up to her after her presentation and saying, have HPV vaccination. And nobody wants it. <laughs> I want to give, I want to vaccinate people and they don't, they don't want to take it. And she actually took my hands and she said, you do not have social capital. Um, which I didn't understand at the time, and I said I still have these vaccines and no one wants them. Um, but what she meant was, it, you you don't have a relationship with these people. You don't have a relationship with your with your patients, and so they don't respect you, and they don't they're not going to listen to what you're saying. So we need to to invest in both our capital with our patients and in their capital with their families and their caregivers. So this is the, this is the rights-based root cause analysis that I would use for asthma. And I'll go through it pretty quickly. Um, but our morbidity in this case is asthma. <coughs> Excuse me. And the sentinel indicators, or the things that I would be really worried about, is if this kid kept having increased use of rescue medications, was being seen in the ED constantly, or had ever had an intubation in his life, or had ever been on steroids, or had been on steroids repeatedly. So then we start to think about the determinants of, of health for this child. So using the broad categories that the CDC has come up with, we think about social economic capital. Uh, we think about political, civil, environmental, and cultural issues that, that could be determinants in this kid's case. And these are the ones I came up with. So maybe he has lack of access to preventative care. Um, maybe he can't afford basic medications. Maybe he doesn't have access to legal aid. Maybe it's an issue of decreased public funding where he lives or commercial routes through low-income neighborhoods. So we can actually um, graph increases in particulate matter, right? When there are uh, these commercial routes through low-income neighborhoods, I can tell you for absolutely certain that they do not go through my neighborhood, right? They, they don't go through my neighborhood because my neighbors would, would, would riot. Um, but they go through the urban core because, because those people don't have the, the necessarily the clout to say anything about it. Um, so this is an equity issue. And business deregulation, you have substandard housing, you have commercial air quality regulations that it can be affecting this child's asthma, and you have cultural issues like toughing it out. The kids that I worry about the most are the adolescents that are using albuterol, are not on a controller, 
And that's the kid that I have nightmares about who's like found in his bedroom with you know, a bunch of like albuterol inhalers on the ground. And he's collapsed because you know, he's just going to tough it out. <clears throat> and then cigarette advertising, which we know can be unethical toward children. So in, in, this, in this case, what I would suggest for advocacy, some of the rights-based advocacy tools I would use are motivational interviewing. Um, you can use a medical legal partnership. You can use human capital investment. And in our, in our city, we have this program called Operation New Hope, which, excuse me, which works with people who've been recently incarcerated. So I would recommend this for the dad who is sitting there trying to really be engaged with his child's care, um, but needs a job and is trying to get back into the workforce and is having a difficult time doing that. So I would refer him to them. They can help him get ready to work. They have a ready to work program and they have a component of that that works just with the children of incarcerated parents. You can do, if you're looking at more systems-based um, interventions, <clears throat> you can do a community health impact assessment for your neighborhood. Um, with regards to asthma, you can look at youth participation. <clears throat> so kids have ideas about how to make their chronic diseases better. And you can sit down with a bunch of kids and ask. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, there are other ideas like a rights-respecting school model or the children's ombudsperson, which I had mentioned before. Having somebody on the youth council, um, with a youth council in the city um, and having them just speak for children and having a voice for children. And some of the policy recommendations, rerouting some of these commercial trade routes, having public health funding that's just for kids with asthma, um, <clears throat> having air quality regulation, and then starting to think about climate justice. <coughs> I'm making other people cough. <laughs> and I would say, um, lastly, that it's really, really important to go out and vote for kids. So ask them in your clinics. They have an idea of what's going on in this country right now. They know, they, they know who they would vote for. And I would challenge you to ask kids. We talk to them about a lot of things, but this really matters. So since kids can't vote, I would really encourage us to ask them who they would vote for and then consider actually lending kids your voice during the, the general election coming up in November. And these are some resources that I think are really useful. So there are a couple of really important AAP policy statements, one on child health equity, one on poverty that came out this year. And the CDC has a really extensive um, website on social determinants that you can do health impact assessments through the CDC. You can look at um, environmental public health tracking. Um, kids Count is a database where you can look up by state um, the number of kids who are who have parents who are incarcerated, who you can look at who's graduating from high school, um, you can look at incomes, you can look at a lot of these social determinants of health through Kids Count. The Race for Results series is just on race through the Annie Casey Foundation, and it's a really excellent tool for, for examining race more closely in your community. And then there's the WHO Commission on Social Determinants as well. Frameworks, I wanted to introduce you to as well, just does social marketing based on, on evidence 
for how to talk about social determinants of health in a bipartisan manner and to have the most impact for whatever topic you're interested in, whether it's early brain development, toxic stress, pick something, they have a script for it and you can use it with your patients. And lastly, there's a social vulnerability index that you can use for your community as well, which is really useful. So with that, I'll end here and ask if anyone has questions. quiet, I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, I just want to draw people's attention to a, a couple of things. One is the Bridges Out of Poverty training that happens periodically. It's a partnership um, through the Boyle Program, the Upper Valley Haven, and the Couch Family Foundation that is a training on how to work with families in this space. We have, there's a very dynamic uh, teacher of that program. So keep your eyes peeled for that. That's and I don't know if Jean Coffey is here. Today, but I was in a meeting yesterday with her, just a shout out to, to her about doing social determinants of health screening in the, in the general pediatric clinic using the We Care. Um, That's screener. great. So there's work going on here. But I just wanted to say thank you so much. No, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sherry. As Steve said, we're all very proud of you. Um, and um, that you're able to come back and sort of share your thoughts with us. So you have recently been here, um, and now you're doing sort of all of this work. And so I wonder um, if um, with sort of the, the new perspective that you, or added perspective that you have, looking back here, if you have sort of thoughts or advice for us about mostly about the day-to-day -day practice, sort of what we do every single day, um, and how to, how to sort of bring some of these issues um, into play. That's a wonderful question. I think one of the things that's really helped in clinic is having a laminated copy of just children's rights. And it comes in child-friendly language so that kids can understand it. And I've, I've noticed that it really helps just having it in the clinic so kids know what their rights are while they're sitting in the exam room kind of waiting for us to show up. That they can look on the wall and kids don't think about their rights until we tell them to. Um, so just giving them an idea of what rights they have in really simple language. Um, and then I think another really, really important tool is having the ACE questionnaire. And even if we don't hand it to every single patient, just have a laminated copy on, on each desk in, in, the, in the exam rooms and just glance at it when you're doing your, your social history. And just think, okay, we know that there's a dose-response relationship between having a couple of these or having more than a couple of these adverse childhood experiences, they directly translate to adult health outcomes. So how many does this kid have and kind of hunting for them because they won't, they won't give them up easily because they're not easy things to talk about. But I think those two things are really useful um, to, to, to start with. And then starting to think about the human capital investment model, these sort of broad domains. And when a kid comes to us and is acting out, to not think, what's wrong with this kid? Because a lot of times that's what they're experiencing in school. The teacher is looking at this kid like, I'm trying to teach 30 other kids and I don't have time to, to deal with this one kid's issues. Um, this kid is a, and they get labeled as uh, the problem child. So to kind of reframe what's wrong with this kid to like what happened to this kid, um, which I'm sure you've all heard, but like what happened to this child? Why is this child behaving this way? Where's the toxic stress and to look for it um, instead of just 
And, and I think we all do that, but to, to focus on that a little bit more. And I was, I was taught how to listen to murmurs this way. I think you might have taught me, Kim, actually. <laughs> when you put your stethoscope down, expect to hear a murmur. And if you don't, you can be pleasantly surprised. Um, and I would, I would approach kids this way when thinking about toxic stress and think, OK, where's the toxic stress? And then if you don't find it, because more than half of kids will have it, then like, OK, I'm pleasantly surprised. And I hope it stays that way. But to, to maybe, a, maybe a, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, OK. Thank you. Um, Sherry, it is so good to have you back. Thank first, you, Kathy. I'm going to brag about her just a little bit. Um, for those of you who don't know, last year she was the first author on a paper published in Pediatrics on Children in Armed Conflict, correct? I'm with you. And she's doing some fantastic work globally in terms of some child's rights work. So be, I'm so proud of all the work that you've done since you've left here and excited to see where you take this in your career. Thank you, Kathy. Um, I want to bring it back to child's rights. Um, today's Yom Kippur. And there is a pediatrician, uh, Janusz Korczak, I'm probably destroying his name right now, <laughs> who was a pediatrician in Poland um, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, um, who was one of the first authors of children's rights. He had a children's rights um, paper for his orphanage that he ran. He wound up dying in the Holocaust in 1942. He went with his children to the gas chambers instead of escaping, because he had the means to escape. Um, to uh, uh, either Europe or the United States, but he went with his children. He wrote this work in the 1930s. We had the Children's UN Rights of a Child written in the 1980s. The United States is one of three countries worldwide that hasn't ratified it. The United States, South Sudan, and Somalia, I believe, are the three. I think they've signed on and ratified in the last couple of years, actually. South one of them, at least one of them, so one of them has. Yeah. Either us in South Sudan or mm -hmm. us in Somalia. I'm not sure which one. So this is a bigger picture question. Given that we are the lone holdout, basically, mm -hmm. in signing this, how do you see us as a society moving forward to promote, advocate, develop policies, um, culture surrounding children's rights? And secondly, um, if you can show me that child's rights things will have it up in clinic. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. So show, show me the child-friendly one, and I'll get it. Awesome. Thank you, Kathy. That's a really good question. So I would say that while we are advocating for, for getting the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, passed in the United States, ratified in the United States, uh, it might take an act of God because you need a, you need a majority um, vote in the, in the Senate and the House. And it might be difficult in this political climate. So I would say even barring ratification, ratification is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to start to use the language and the tools. So even if we're not officially ratifying the CRC and we're still working toward that, I would say to start using that long list of tools, which I can also make available. And to start using the language because words really matter. And when we start to frame things in, in the language of child rights, um, it really changes the way we, we think about it and the way that kids think about it. So it, it's not so much about protection as it is about enabling children and, and giving them their rights and to, using, to start to use a rights framework using social justice principles, using equity principles, uh, whether or not it's officially the law of the land 
um, because it would require really sweeping changes and it, it actually gets into a lot of issues about armed conflict because the convention, there are reasons we haven't ratified, including um, you know, kids less than 18 can't be involved in armed conflict, some issues with child labor, um, and some issues with uh, parental rights, frankly. Um, and I don't know if that's a question anyone has, but in my mind, this is not about taking rights away from parents. In fact, there are like at least 12 articles that specifically relate to giving support to parents in fulfilling the rights of their children. Just like women's rights is not about taking rights away from men or anybody. It's just about enfranchising a group of the population that otherwise doesn't have rights. Um, but to start to use the, the language and to frame some of these issues that we see in clinic as rights issues because, frankly, if a kid can't breathe and has asthma and it's getting worse because of inequity, it is a rights issue. And to start using the language and say this is a human rights violation and to call it what it is. I'd like to ask you a personal question. Sure. Um, sure. In social justice work, as, you're, as you know and as you're beginning to learn, there are many battles and, and relatively few victories. Twice in the presentation you made, you said something, and I'll quote, once you said it makes you cry, and another time you said it just breaks my heart. What methods do you use as a, as a trooper in a long battle to um, integrate other parts of your life, your family, your little child, your professional work, to maintain your spirit and not develop an excess of frustration, anger, uh, uh, disappointment, uh, cynicism, and all of those other things that will sustain you for the long haul? That's a great question. Um, thank you for asking it. So I would say that um, Two things. One, my mentor, uh, who I owe a lot of this work to, Jeff Goldhagen, has always said that kids don't need your compassion right now. Kids who are suffering from social injustice and inequity don't need your compassion, which sounds like a really radical statement because, I mean, as I said, it like breaks my heart. But what they, it's like, he said, it's like surgery. Like, you don't really care if your surgeon's lovey-dovey or if your hemonk doctor is like super cuddly, you just want them to fix it. So I would say compassion is actually secondary. And we have to approach this in a really clinical way. And to, to do right by our patients, the compassion is essential. Um, but to, to really focus on the inequity and to excise it if we can. Um, and we, we're all compassionate people, but I would say that you don't even need that. Um, you, you, you just have to do the work. Um, but having said that, how do you deal with sort of the, the personal angst? Um, and I've had a lot of it, especially in my work with children in armed conflict. I'm doing a systematic review on the effects, physical and developmental health effects. And I think I was in tears like every day. It was also because I was pregnant, I think, at the time. <laughs> but I was in tears like every day. But, but, but pulling back and being really grateful and, and faith helps. Um, being grateful for my family, being grateful that I'm alive, and starting to think about, um, again, switching from disparity, focusing on disparity, to this human capital investment model. A lot of these kids coming out of armed conflict are extremely resilient. And we just need to figure out 
what their, where their human capital is and build a grid under it, to, like a scaffolding to support them. So switching from talking about disparity to focusing on human capital investment has really helped me to sort of shift my mind from constantly thinking about the negative disparity to like, what does this kid have that we can help support and, and create the best uh, outcome and create the most resilient um, situation for this child? Thank you. That's great. Everybody have a great Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.